Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest today is Rob Strauss. Rob is a shareholder and director at Weinstock Mannion and specializes in guiding high net worth families, business owners, and real estate developers through the complex process of estate and wealth transfer planning. With an extensive background as a transactional attorney, he's able to effectively advise owners of businesses and real estate regarding business succession plans and pre-liquidity event wealth transfer plans. Rob has been named a top 20 power lawyer by The Hollywood Reporter and listed in Best Lawyers in America from 2013 to 2019 and Southern California Super Lawyers from 2005 to 2019. He's also currently an instructor at UCLA Extension, teaching advanced estate planning, and is a past president of the Los Angeles Estate Counselors Forum. Thanks so much for joining us, Rob. It's really my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the subject of today's episode is legendary musician and, frankly, American icon James Brown, the uh, central progenitor of funk music and a major figure of all 20th century music, really. He's often referred to by honorific nicknames such as the Godfather of Soul, Mr. Dynamite, or my favorite, Soul Brother Number 1. In a career that lasted over 50 years, he influenced the development of most music genres. Brown was one of the first 10 inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on its inaugural induction in New York on January 23rd, 1986. Brown sadly passed at age 74 from what's officially listed as congestive heart failure related to pneumonia on Christmas Day in 2006. And there's basically been constant fighting about his estate ever since. Brown's estate plan, last updated about six years before his death, was relatively simple. It provided for his personal effects to be distributed to his six adult children, for $2 million to establish a fund for the educational needs of his grandchildren, and for the rest of his assets to fund the I Feel Good Trust for scholarships for financially needy and deserving students at schools in South Carolina and Georgia. Unmarried when he signed the documents, Brown even included a provision that he was intentionally not providing for any past, current, or future wives, or for any children other than the six named children. Subsequently, he participated in a marriage ceremony to Tommy Ray Heine, who had signed a prenuptial agreement forgoing any rights to his estate. Ten months later, she gave birth to a son named James Jr. Three years into the marriage, James sought an annulment claiming Heine was already married, and in a subsequent consent decree, Tommy Ray waived any claim of a common-law marriage. However, despite all of these prior waivers of her rights, Tommy Ray consisted the will and trust on Brown's death. She and five of his six children claimed the estate plan was invalid because James signed the documents as a result of undue influence, and this claim they based largely on his past history of drug abuse. 
Now, the conflict over Brown's estate, which value was never really clearly publicly established, estimates sort of range between well over $100 million to as low as about $5 million, only escalated from there and largely centered on the lucrative royalty rights to his likeness and songs. With his, and his children and Heine sort of were alt- alternatively allies and opponents, you know, suing each other multiple times over the years. It's gone on to become the longest-running high-profile estate fight of this century, involving over 100 lawyers featuring dozens of individual lawsuits. It was even subject of the best-selling author James McBride's books, Kill Him and Leave, Searching for James Brown and the American Soul, which itself was published all the way back in 2017, which given it's an indication of how long this has gone. In July of this year, thankfully, the parties finally reached a settlement agreement, the details of which have predictably not yet come out, finally bringing this 15-year fight to a close. So the fight over James Brown's estate was one of the biggest conflicts we've ever seen, and despite philanthropy being a central tenet of the plan in place at Brown's death, the I Feel Good Trust really hasn't seen any money, certainly not compared to what was spent on lawyers and court fees. So Rob, what are some techniques that philanthropy-inclined clients can use to ensure that their money actually reaches the causes they care about? That's a terrific question. I have to tell you, a place to start, because there are so many possibilities, there are so many techniques, but really the place to start is for the client to give a great deal of thought and consideration to what exactly the client really wants to do. And what I mean by that is, what charities does the client want to support and how much? How much really matters? And and not just the dollar amount, but the percentage of the overall estate. Because, for example, you can make a gift while you're alive. That's easy to do. You could write a bequest into your will or your trust. That's easy to do. Or you could create a private foundation. That's rather involved. You could create a donor-advised fund, which is a little bit less involved. And there are pros and cons to to picking a private foundation versus a donor-advised fund. And of course, there are the so-called split interest trusts, like charitable remainder trusts and charitable lead trusts. But it all comes back to the client really defining what they want to do. You know, I, I, I tell you, I have clients who say, I want to give some money to help kids. That is so vague. And when a client would say something like that to me, and I'd say, that's fine. So what is it about kids that interests you? Not that they're cute or that they're young, but how would you like to help them? And then I might ask, have you donated money to children's causes in the past? And if so, which ones have you donated to? But that's the place to start. Yeah, I think you talked about a lot of stuff there. It was a very broad question. This idea of that, that really you, get, you started at the very beginning here is a lot of estate planning, and this is overlooked often, can be accomplished during life. You know, these things don't have to necessarily just be thrown into the will. And, and these conversations you're talking about, about intention and thinking about what they actually want to do beyond the vagaries of, I want to give all the rest away, which a lot of clients will say something like that. Sure. You know, and, and can help establish these things. But even more valuable is, well, now that we've figured out where we want to give it and that you want to give it, if you can afford to give it now, why are we waiting? <laughs> what is, well, what so, is? So, so there are actually pros and cons to giving now. For example, if you make a gift now, you get actually two benefits. You get a charitable income tax deduction, which would save income tax, and that might be pretty valuable. And you, in effect, get a charitable estate tax deduction because the assets that you give now don't exist in your estate at your death and therefore would never be subject to estate tax. On the other hand, if you give the assets now, you no longer own them and you can no longer benefit from them economically. 
And I have clients, as you can imagine, who kind of need to keep their assets for the rest of their life in order to ensure their own personal financial security. Not everybody is in that position, of course. Plenty of clients are aware of the fact that they have more than they need and can afford to give philanthropy now. And I have some other clients who you might call entrepreneurial philanthropists who take the view that they can grow their estate inside of their estate to a much greater extent than a philanthropy ever could. And so they're keeping their assets in their estate because they're making a lot of money. And their intention is then to give the grown and the growth assets to charity at death. So it's an interesting decision. Should we give now uh, or should we wait and give until death? Yeah, and I think, you know, tying into what you said before, it's, it's something that should be discussed, right? It's one of these things that don't leave it, you know, th- throw a vague clause into the into a will or an estate plan and then leave it to be decided later. Because as we see, like James Brown, as we saw, had, you know, he had a trust that he, you know, even had the trust set up. But, you know, things come up. Your children maybe don't agree, you know, they don't share. Maybe even if you've raised philanthropically inclined children, they don't necessarily feel the same way about the same charities you do. And I mean, ultimately, they're going to tend to be the ones who have a lot of control over how smoothly this process goes. Sure. And, you know, you're, you, you make an interesting point about the kids and you know whether they're going to support the concept or not. It should be the case that a client is allowed to do whatever the client wants to do, as long as the client is competent and the client is not subject to undue influence. It should be the case. But what I found is that Most of the time that someone challenges the estate plan is when they are surprised by the estate plan. Mm -hmm. And, And for the right family, I think there's a lot of sense in having a family discussion about what the goals and objectives really are to set the expectations. So the kids are not surprised at death. The kids are getting, you know, 80% of the estate instead of 100% of the estate because the parents wanted to give 20% to charity explained it to the kids, the kids bought into it, and everything went beautifully and smoothly. But if the kids had an expectation instead, right, that they were going to get 100%, you could see how they might be upset. That doesn't mean that there are legal grounds for the kids to challenge. And I think the James Brown case was really unusual. I mean, not just in its length and not just how nasty it's been or how many lawyers have been involved. And can you imagine what the legal fees must be? My goodness, what a shame. What a waste, really. I think that case may have turned on the unique nature of the asset that was given. And it may be the case that the estate planning attorneys needed to do a better job of consulting with the intellectual property attorneys in that Mm -hmm. case to understand what the requirements are under the intellectual property laws to accomplish what, what it is that the client actually wanted to accomplish. That's really unusual. That almost never arises. 95% or more of the time, we don't have a unique asset where there may be a different body of law that would govern how you transfer it, who inherits it, and so forth. And we're just dealing with regular assets where really what the client needs to do is decide how much do I want to give, when do I want to give, and what specific charities do I want to give to. Yeah, I mean, these, this idea of sitting the family down and talking to them beforehand is, I mean, just generally useful in all estate planning, philanthropic or otherwise. I think a lot of outside onlookers, I guess, 
sort of underestimate. They, they look at these estate plans and they're like, oh, look at these greedy kids. They, you know, they, they ascribe these sort of uh, challenges to very base sort of emotions like greed and, and self-interest. And a lot of times, you know, they underestimate the, the impact of, um, you know, like you said, I'm surprised and, and things that are a little bit more fleeting, like sort of spite or, or jealousy about you know, how something happened or, you know, just a, a feeling of being spurned, which if you have that conversation and you have those emotions arise when everyone's still alive, it's much easier. And first, you give it time to sort of diffuse. And second, the person who's making the decision is there to help diffuse it and explain themselves. So you, you avoid a lot of these sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of whiplash reactions that are, you know, oh, I'm challenging this well immediately because I'm so upset right now. Whereas given some refractory period maybe and some explanation, they wouldn't necessarily have been. So I think, David, the point that you just made is spot on. I think that most of the time, the upset is not really rooted in financial causes, but instead is really instead rooted in family, personal, emotional, kind of like mommy loved you better. And now I'm really surprised that we didn't get what I thought we were going to get. And I'm really upset. And the surprise just exacerbates, you know, the the 60-year-old feelings that have existed that so many families have. Even really good families have these kinds of feelings buried beneath the surface. And really good families should discuss these issues. So they're all on the same page. And by the way, by the way, there's a lot of good that can be done by bringing the children and the grandchildren into the philanthropic discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also with these emotions, sort of, you know, when in looking things in hindsight, it's like, well, you should have known that they would have gotten upset by this, or you should have known that they hated their stepmother. But a lot of times when we're dealing with estate plans, we're not only dealing with these unexpected emotions, but even the actors themselves kind of a lot of times don't know what they're going to care about until it's put in front of them to care about. You maybe don't care about dad's baseball mitt or his chair while it's just sitting there in his house while he's alive. But once he's gone, all of a sudden, those things can take on outsized meaning you know and can be then a lot of times those are what gets fought over and, and you know that's we're getting a little bit away from the philanthropic part of things now but i just want to really um drive this communication point home and that you know it's impossible to anticipate everything but a lot of times these sorts of conversations can have kind of a knock-on effect where new things come up because of them and then they're addressed and sort of headed off before they can turn into a real thing where if you looked forward and hadn't had this conversation you could see like oh this would have been a real issue Sure. And I have this case today. I'm I'm driving out to a client's home this afternoon to have a conversation with him. He's a gentleman in his early 90s. He's worth nine, 10 figures of assets. He's already transferred nine figures, low nine figures of assets to his children. And he's thinking at this point that his children have more than enough. And that what he wants to do is leave the the rest of his estate to his private foundation, which I think is wonderfully generous. But his kids are completely unaware of that. His kids know that he's been donating significantly while he's alive to charity. And I believe that his kids are under the belief that his while you're alive giving is the totality of what he's going to be doing. And they're going to be very surprised by the fact that he's leaving literally 60% of his estate to charity. And my conversation today with him is going to be focused on my encouraging him to bring his kids into that discussion so that they are not surprised, so that they are supportive. And yeah, I, ho- I hope I like hope he that. accepts my advice, but you know, it's going to be <laughs> up to always, him. It's that's his, always the question, it's his, right? It's his, it's completely his call. And, and he's a, he's a patriarch. And we've had conversations about this issue before. 
This is not the first conversation. And in the past, he said, of course, they're going to do what I want. They always have. I just tell them this is what we're doing and they do it. And my response to him is, but when you're gone, things are going to be different. And we really should line everybody up, make sure that they understand what you're doing, buy into it and help you with it. I hope he I hope he listens to my advice, but we'll see. Yeah. And ultimately, it's a matter, you know, you want to have the client's wishes be filled out, you know, as their attorney to sort of the letter as much as you can. But ultimately, doing this is also a matter of respect and recognition of the, you know, the maturity and, and the, the agency of the children as well, where especially with patriarchs, the, you know, first generation wealth creators, things like that, who are used to just being in control, ruling with an iron fist, you know, um, right. they often, you know, even their 60, when we're talking about, quote unquote, their children, this is often a 55-year-old person who <laughs> has had an entire life of experience that you yeah. know, has been being negated down to, oh, but you're my child and you do it. And so these conversations can help you know, maybe put these families back in touch with each other a little bit and give these kids a feeling of agency where even if this is not necessarily what they wanted to do with this money, they at least feel respected and consulted and that they can then will still you know, grudgingly go through with it or they can change the plan. I think that's really well put. And and this man has five children who are in their sixties, all exactly. of whom have all of whom themselves have grandchildren. So there are five generations here. There's a lot going on and a lot at stake. And really it presents a wonderful opportunity. It really does. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on. The opportunity that presents to bring the family into this process and to hopefully allow the family to augment the effectiveness of the process. So you mentioned this family in particular uh, is, is obviously a 10 figures. We're working with an enormous amount of money here. So and that they have a, a private foundation, which, again, I think is traditionally something that that is limited to the, the highest end of, of philanthropically inclined clients. But do you mind getting into the differences here? Because and you mentioned this at the very start, the, sort of the question of foundation versus donor advised fund and sort of sure. what the pros and cons there look like. Well, I think at the at the basic level, the. The most important distinction is the effort involved in connection with establishing the fund, whether it's a private foundation or a donor-advised fund, and then after that, the ongoing effort involved in connection with maintaining it, doing the practical things like filing paperwork with the IRS and so forth. And establishing a private foundation is a personal expense and it costs a fair amount of money and you have to have a good accounting team who knows how to prepare the required tax returns you have to have good lawyers who can instruct you on the types of investments that you're permitted to make and you're prohibited from making and the amount of contributions that you have to make and so what i found in my practice as i'm sure you have as well in in um, the course of your career is that it takes a fair amount of wealth to want to establish a private foundation to, to justify incurring the cost and the effort. Whereas it's much easier to establish a donor advised fund. And there are a number of organizations that sponsor them and would be delighted to do the lion's share of the work on your behalf so that you really don't have to do that much. Now they charge a small fee, so you have to be aware of what the fee is, but they'll establish the fund. They'll give you all kinds of information about potential charitable recipients. They'll do research for you if you want them to. So you don't even have to have a staff to help you figure out who should receive your charitable donations. And so what I found is that folks who are interested in establishing what I call a warehouse, it's a place to park your charitable funds before you've decided where they should. And if it's not 
a significant amount of money that would justify the expense and the effort of establishing a private foundation, instead establish a donor advised fund. And that can work really well. And then the question is, well, what's the breakpoint? How much is enough to justify a private foundation? And I don't really know the answer to that because it's personal. It's, it's not really an objective thing. It's a subjective thing. And there are other factors and elements that come into play. But what I found is that clients who are thinking about donating maybe $5 million or more are, are a little bit more inclined to establish their own fund, meaning a private foundation, whereas clients who are planning on donating less than that probably are going to be focused on a donor advised fund, which works really, really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously there's, there's, you know, things here that, that go to the client's decision making beyond just the dollars and cents, right? I mean, the ability to put your name on a foundation and have that sort of be forever associated with the family is a very sort of public declaration of family philanthropic intent that can either be something that's very desirable or can actually be a hindrance in the long run, depending on, you know, what the family wants to do. And that's sort of regardless outside the realm of dollars and cents. Um, yeah. Absolutely. There are are clients who are all over the map in terms of publicity or anonymity. And a donor advised fund is much easier to establish anonymity. But you can establish just as much publicity with a donor advised fund. It's just that when I get clients who are interested in having their name on something, maybe for the recognition or maybe as a way of driving further donations, they tend to prefer private foundations. Yeah. I am of the opinion, I mean, this is my personal opinion, that the donor advised fund is one of the most underused tools in sort of all of wealth planning, even outside of state planning, because it is you know, so versatile in the, in the purposes, because it, so much of it is handled by outside factors that the family has to, can really use it in a lot of different ways. It can obviously, like you said, and this is in the context we're speaking about it now, be just an easy way to manage philanthropy, right? Warehouser, we're not ready to give it all yet. We don't want to know where we give it to. We can sort of make that decision as we go by warehousing it and then sort of distributing. And it can also be used for involving children, you know, actual children generally, not the 55-year-old children we were just talking about, um, (laughs) who you want to sort of pass on, you know, philanthropic ideals to or see how they handle a certain amount of money where, you know, they can put it into a donor advised fund and allow them to be in charge of it. I mean, the money's already donated. So the sort of the failure state there is not that they lose all the money. It's still going to charity. You know, so you can sort of help train them and sort of training wheels their way into the, the family, you know, business or, or philanthropic endeavor through a smaller donor advised fund, you know, with, with, you know, for the kids. I think that's a fantastic point. And every time I have a client talking about the possibility of establishing either a private foundation or a donor advised fund. Every time I mention to them, I discuss with them, I urge them to get their children involved, to set aside X percent of what will be donated to charity to get their kids working on it, or maybe their grandkids working on it, to teach them philanthropy. I think it's a wonderful tool. And now just to, to finish sort of running down the list of, of, of your very first sentence answering my question, um, we come to the, the idea of split interest trusts, which are a little bit in the estate planning weeds for our audience, but I think are so important that we have to touch on them. So when we talk about a sort of split interest trust, what, what exactly do we mean? Sure. So split interest means if you can view a timeline for a certain portion of the timeline, one party benefits, and for the rest of the timeline, a different party benefits. And there are two basic 
flavors or families of split interest trusts. One of them is a charitable remainder trust. The other is a charitable lead trust. So with a charitable remainder trust, here's how the split interest works. The client is the initial beneficiary for a term of years not to exceed 20 or for the lifetime of the client, subject to certain limitations on how the math works out. And when that period of time is over, whatever's left inside of that trust goes to charity. And the one of the reasons why clients would do a charitable remainder trust is because they want to keep some of the value of what they're donating for some period of time, meaning the term. And one of the principal reasons the clients use charitable remainder trusts is because they're interested in selling an asset on which they would have to pay capital gains. And by contributing that asset prior to an obligation to sell to the charitable remainder trust and letting it sit in there for a reasonable period of time, and then having the charitable remainder trust itself sell the asset, no capital gains tax is paid up front. There, there's a very complicated income tax scheme, or not scheme, but uh, structure for how distributions from the charitable remainder trust to the client actually work. And capital gains tax does get paid over time, but it's over time. And so the present value of that income stream that the client would keep, you have to compare to the value to the client of selling that asset directly and then paying the capital gains tax. And sometimes the value of that income stream by virtue of contributing the asset to the charitable remainder trust first is going to exceed what the client could have kept if the client had not done a CRT. Sometimes it won't. You always have to run the math. And what I found is that many clients who are considering CRTs, charitable remainder trusts, are really only interested in doing it if as a consequence of doing it, they can actually put more money into their pockets than if they hadn't done it. Sometimes that's the case, sometimes it isn't. But I do have clients who are interested in doing it even if they don't get to enrich themselves even further because they're interested in philanthropy and they really value the fact that assets end up going to charity. A charitable lead trust is kind of the opposite. The charity receives the lead interest for a term that's defined in the instrument and whatever's left over when that lead interest is over, goes to the family. One of the common uses of a charitable lead trust in large estates, where the beneficiaries have already received meaningful wealth and therefore can afford to postpone receiving this last piece, is to, at death, pursuant to a mechanism that we call a testamentary charitable lead trust, fund a charitable lead trust with assets directly from the estate in a way that produces a zero estate tax with respect to the assets that go into the charitable lead trust, such that the charity actually on a present value basis receives the value of the contribution. But based on certain aspects of how the math works, for example, valuation discounts, for example, appreciation potential, it's frequently the case that even though the charity ends up on a present value basis receiving the full value of what's been contributed so that there's no estate tax, when the term of the charitable deed trust expires years into the future, there will be assets remaining perhaps meaningful assets remaining. In some cases, depending upon the level of the valuation discount and the rate of appreciation, potentially even more will be inside of the CLT for distribution to the family than at death 
years before. So it's potentially a really interesting vehicle, especially in larger estates. Yeah, and savvy listeners will note that, especially the uh, the charitable remainder trust is sort of very similar to how a uh, granter retained annuity trust kind of works. It's not a, it's not apples to apples completely, but they're, they're very. It's a very similar concept. Um, it is. Are there any Rob? Are there is there any sort of thought given to as which types of assets are best to put into these trusts, depending on sort of what the family wants to establish uh, accomplish? I mean, well, you always have to be aware of of. Um the prohibitions that exist with respect to charitable vehicles. And so, for example, contributing real estate encumbered by a mortgage or a deed of trust is always going to be problematic. And it's just such a challenge to navigate those waters that I'm generally advising clients to steer away from doing that kind of thing. But short of that, it depends on the objective. And so, for example, when I was describing how a charitable lead trust works, those work so much better if you're able to contribute an asset that receives a valuation discount. So we would be focused not on cash, but on something that actually can generate a valuation discount. Um, We're talking about sort of non-voting stock or something like that. And there, are, there of course, are, are other restrictions that could potentially be imposed. Like, for example, if you have an S-corp, Maybe you can't contribute your S-Corp stock to one of these charitable vehicles. And California, where where I am located, uh, has a prohibition against contributing LLCs to these charitable vehicles, which is really weird, but it does. So short of understanding what the structural limitations are, I think what we're focused on is assets that might appreciate in value for one of the split interest trusts. We've already gotten a little deeper in the weeds of estate planning than the normal episode goes, and I, you know, I'm guilty myself, and I, I sort of enjoy it, so and I really get an opportunity to do it. But uh, we're unfortunately running out of time here. I'd like to thank Rob Strauss for being just a fantastic guest and for giving us a really great outlook on, on what is a very broad and very deep topic. Thank you, Rob. It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates wills of the rich and famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.